Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for the jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him. But the mouths of liars will be silenced. I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, we recognize your love for us and we open our hearts to your word. I pray that whatever we receive, we apply into our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to to lead a great spiritual family here at this historic church. I'd love to get to know you. We have a newcomer's lunch, as Andy mentioned. So if you're new or newish, please do uh, head back that way. It's sort of over there. I'd love to meet you, answer any questions you've got about us as a church or even the Christian faith if you're here and you're exploring. Um, You've come on a good Sunday. Uh, It's the start of a new series called Heart Cry. It's an eight-part series all about prayer where we are seeking to learn to how do we talk to God? How do we cry out to God from the heart? How do we listen in prayer to God's heart and catch his heart, be transformed by his heart that we might reveal his heart to this city, to the nation? There are many, many people out there who are looking for God, but just in all the wrong places. This series is about becoming more like what David was called in the Bible, a man, a people who are after God's own heart. David is the author of the psalm, the poem, the the song that was just read to you. And it's one of the great liturgies of Scripture because prayer can be hard, right? Uh, prayer can be difficult. Anybody just want to own up, be honest about that? Do you find prayer difficult? Just raise your hand. Uh, that, m- a few, maybe most, I think all of us, maybe. And there are moments in life where prayer is, is more difficult because circumstances that that bit more difficult and harder. And you find that you don't know how to pray. What do I pray? How do I, what do I do in this situation? And to have words that you can trust. 
that you can just read from the heart back to, to God is such a blessing. And that's what this psalm and that's what this whole series is about. Not just teaching us how to pray, but what to pray when it's really hard to pray. It's one of the reasons we're doing the series. So David wrote this psalm. We see that in the original introduction to the psalm, which is there in the Hebrew. Uh, unlike sometimes the chapters and, and the verses, they're not there originally. But this scripture is a psalm of David. Now, David lived about a thousand years before Jesus Christ. That's about 3,000 years ago. He's a real flesh and blood person and archaeology, even though archaeology is still in its early kind of years, it's kind of like 150, 200 years old, we're still sort of discovering what is beneath the ground around the world and already is beginning to very powerfully attest to his existence. This is the Tell Dan Steely and you can Google that to find out more. But we are looking at the prayer of a real flesh and blood man and it goes on to say that he wrote this Psalm David when he was in the desert of Judah. When he was in a wilderness, when he was in a dry and barren place, not just geographically but spiritually. And I'll unpack more of that as we go through. But just for the sake of this introduction, all you need to know is that he was desperate for God. His soul, that inner most sensitive, most vulnerable part of himself was crying out to find satisfaction in God. And we live in a city that is relentlessly chasing after and striving and earnestly seeking success and fulfillment all over the place through different means and ways. And it's desperately though dry and barren because it seems like the only people who are succeeding in that are those who are faking it on Instagram. Outside of Jesus, the city that we live in is nothing but dry and barren. Doesn't ultimately satisfy. But it's full of promises that it makes again and again of where you can find satisfaction and there's pressure to conform, to soak up the culture and the values and the appetites of this city of London, that it becomes really hard for us to say, to say no, not to forget that they don't work, they're no good for me, that we get caught up into that and we start drinking of the this deceitfulness going on in our city. And so I want to start by just reminding us how bankrupt Everything else is out there apart from finding satisfaction in Jesus. So I want to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it out loud. It might embarrass me and you if you do so. Um, but what do a successful model Kate Moss and I have in common? <laughs> Thank you. I was going to get there. <laughs> Now, um, here's a phenomenally wealthy woman. She has a $80 million fortune. Mine is only half of that. Uh, <laughs> no, nowhere near that. Not in common there. Very different. Uh, do we also share this thing in common that we've both had a 1.5 million pound 18 karat gold statue made of us? 
Uh, no, <laughs> no, not true. I think probably uh, the main thing we have in common right now is we both have gray hair, but that's not the story. And if you've been around for a while, you would know the truth of the story is that to my shock, when I was being diagnosed with depression at the Priory Clinic, she was also a patient there. You see, I, I just not long had plastic surgery. Um, I, I believed completely that to find satisfaction in my soul had to be physically attractive to become successful and famous and wealthy. It was all about the way that you looked. So I had plastic surgery, but it wasn't enough. So I'd gone back to the surgeon and asked for more, but he said, no, it's too risky. So I was depressed. Imagine my shock when I discover that the woman who has everything I so desperately am chasing after is desperately unhappy. All of this stuff, bankrupt. Or what about this? The words of an environmental activist. You can cultivate an image of being a great activist whilst actually being extremely unhappy. A sort of lifelong kind of low level depression. Now, I'm not against caring for the environment at all, but doing all that stuff doesn't satisfy your soul. Or reflect on these words from a woman who put sentimental love before scriptural faith, and she went on not just to date, but to marry a man who didn't share her beliefs and her convictions, and she says this, if you think you are lonely before you get married, it's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you are married. These lesser loves, they kind of string you along, making false promise after false promise after false promise, only to kind of almost jilt you at the altar to leave you utterly destitute. To me, it kind of reminds me in a way of um, the TV series Lost. I don't know if anybody um, ended up watching Lost out there. It's a TV series, uh, many, many episodes involved in it. And it's this strange story of a group of people who kind of crash land through an aeroplane and they land and they survive on this island together. And there's some kind of greater purpose or meaning or significance to why they're there and what's going on. And you get dropped little clue after little clue. And you keep watching episode after episode, series after after series, desperately hoping for some greater, deeper meaning to be revealed in this whole story. And then if you get to the end, you discover it's just one disappointing, damp squib of nothing stupidity. I don't know if you watched it all the way through. I gave up. I googled the ending. It was so, what a waste of time. Only the creator God can hold true to his promises. Only his love satisfies our hearts. Only his glory can sustain our weakness. You know the 4th century theologian Augustine? He was a black Algerian, by the way. I just want to say that because if you Google a picture of him, you'll often see him as a white man, which is ridiculous. But he said this. He said to God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Author of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Oxford professor and convert from atheism, C.S. Lewis, said it this way. 
our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It takes me to one of the stories that's told in a first century biography about Jesus, Luke chapter 8. And it's the story of the desperate man. This man is desperate because his daughter is dying and nothing and no one can help his little 12-year-old girl. But he has a problem. He is the leader of the Jewish group that Jesus is challenging, even daring, criticizing. What does he do? I tell you, this dad does what every person should do in this auditorium today. He humiliates himself and he runs to Jesus and you can almost hear him saying, if I can just get to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. And he gets to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet and he pleads for, for Jesus to help his daughter. He knows Jesus has performed miracles. He is desperate. And Jesus is God. Reveals the heart of God. He says, I am willing. Let's go. And as they start to set off, there is a crowd around Jesus. And Jesus suddenly stops dead in his tracks. He feels power has gone out from him. And he looks around to see what's going on. And there's a woman, this wretched woman, has now interrupted the situation. She has been bleeding, vaginal bleeding for 12 years. No one and nothing could help her. And she is desperate. You can just imagine her pushing her way through the crowd, praying out loud. If I can just get to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. This woman who, because of her bleeding, is unclean. She's lonely. She's isolated. I tell you, in the moment that she just touches the garment of Jesus, she is instantly healed and finds the deepest satisfaction that she had been longing for her whole life. But what about the desperate dad? See, this delay has caused a problem for him. News comes because they've not gone straight away that his daughter is no longer simply sick. She is dead. Things have got worse for him. And maybe that's the situation you find yourself in today. Things feel worse. You went to Jesus. You expected everything would just get better straight away like that. Only it's got worse. Well, be patient. Wait. Don't give up. 
Because Jesus delays here. It's a deliberate delay in the sovereign plan of God to demonstrate he's not simply a healer. He is a deliverer from death. He goes with the man into his house, into the room where the girl is, and he raises that 12-year-old girl from the dead to the shock, awe, and wonder of that family and that crowd. And I tell you for that, Dad, a moment of joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. She's alive. And that is a picture of what it's like to know Jesus. Jesus is God and he heals us from the greatest sickness of the soul. Sin, rebellion, guilt, shame, all the bad stuff that we do. The sin that leads to death. What is this death? It is separation from God. And all that is good and it can begin in this life but it can be ratified if we don't bow the knee to Jesus and humiliate ourselves in that sense. It can be ratified, made permanent in the life to come and we are separated forever in the ultimate state of dissatisfaction inside us. Understatement, a place called hell. But you don't have to go there because simply by faith, not by being a good person or going to church regularly or reading your Bible, simply by trusting in Jesus and coming before him you can drink of his living water and have eternal life I need to ask you have you made that decision have you become like the desperate dad or the wretched woman in your approach to Jesus are you still living that way if you began like that have you drifted and become comfortable almost independent satisfied in your own stuff apart from Jesus we have a privilege even greater than David had to know God in that he willingly bled and died for us. You see, that's love. That's real love. Love isn't some kind of feeling to chase after some limited temporary emotion. That's the Greco-Roman myth. It's popularized but by Hollywood. No, I tell you, love leads with the will. Love is a decision. Love is, his beauty is in its bloody sacrifice. Its glory is in its gritty determination and reality. Love isn't some kind of bird that sort of flies off and then lands on somebody and then it's on to somebody else as people might say oh we're in love it just happened it came upon us now it doesn't matter that you're married to somebody else oh no it's love what could we do we can't help it we're in love we've got the goosebumps to prove it rubbish <laughs> love is a decision of the will it is a choice it is a sacrifice. It is revealed in a stake in the ground of human history, in the wooden timbers of the cross, not some kind of vaporous perfumes of a prostitute which smell nice for a while and then are gone. Capital L, lasting love. It comes from God. It's a t- Eternal because it's from him. 
It's not simply a, a concept. It's personal and it's constant. It can be found in the loving arms of God reaching out to you from that brutal execution tool, the cross, as he is paying sin's penalty so that you don't have to. I tell you, that's love. That's love. Do you know that love? You see, beneath all of the crud and the mud and the dirt and the detritus of all the stuff that is out there, the deepest longing of your heart, of every person's heart in this room is for God and for that love. To know it and to know it more intimately, more deeply. David calls it that this love is, verse 3, he says, better than life itself. Better than the best of, of, of the richest of foods of this world. He says, verse 5, he says, this love is better than anything else in the entire universe. Is this love of God and I want it more. Do you want it? Well, you can have it. And you can experience it through the first of four ways to pray. And the first of those ways is through longing prayer. You see, the first cry of every human heart should be a cry for God. Longing prayer is authentically expressing your desperate need for God. It's saying to him how much you thirst for him. It's admitting that nothing else in this world will satisfy that career, that job, that relationship, this, that, money. None of that. You're saying none of that is is enough. It's all bankrupt. I will not settle for anything less. And it's saying sorry for where your heart has chased after all these other things. Saying, God, I thirst for you. That's the context of Psalm 63. See, the wilderness that David was in was a wilderness when he was a king. If you look at verse 11, he says, but the king will rejoice. So it's not the wilderness when he is on the run being chased by the mad king Saul, his predecessor out hiding in caves. I mean, it might speak into that context, but that's not the immediate context of him writing this psalm. This is another kind of wilderness. It's the wilderness of the consequences of his sin catching up with him. It's the wilderness that's come out of his putting his sexual appetites before his family priorities of accumulating concubines and wives of Bathsheba gate, of adultery and then murder. It's neglecting his children and not dealing with issues of injustice in his family. And so now a son, Absalom, has grown up, poisoned with anger and vengeance for his father. And he's turned the heart of the people against David and he has stolen the throne. And so David, to avoid a bloodbath, is now retreating out of Jerusalem. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. And as they are marching, they are weeping with sorrow. A long, sad, painful journey through a wilderness 
terrain terribly arid, no, the future completely uncertain. And in this context, David prays this psalm. We do well to emulate. This is how we should pray because we know that wilderness experience. We know the experience of our sin catching up with us, the mess. We've got it wrong and we've done bad stuff and we're upset, we've disappointed and it's all coming back upon us and raining down and it's unpleasant and we feel disconnected and distant. There's chaos all around us. And in that moment, David prays a beautiful psalm. A beautiful psalm. And it says... Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. The word earnest doesn't just mean that he seeks God with zeal and all the passion and energy that he has. It's connected in the Hebrew to the word dawn, the rising of the sun. David is basically saying the first thing I do when I wake up, the first thought on my mind is not like 90% of us is to get out our mobile phone and look at it. For David, it's no, the first thought on my mind, the moment that I wake up is God. And I will give voice, I will own, I will admit that I am nothing without him, that I am desperate for God. As soon as I wake up, I exist for him. That is longing prayer. Is that how you pray? That's the first point. The second point is beholding prayer from verse 2. David says, I have seen or I have looked upon you in the sanctuary and beheld, past tense, looked, seen, beheld your power and your glory. David is remembering and rehearsing and going over the goodness and the glory and the greatness of, of God in his mind. You see, there's a principle in life that you, you become like what you behold. I know this is true in my life. So if I watch too much Jack Bauer or Jason Bourne, I become a bit edgy and a bit jumpy and a bit irritable. And I start to have ridiculous ideas about what manhood is. Manhood is being able to fight, is knowing martial arts and to be able to interrogate terrorists and dismantle bombs and all that kind of stuff. How ridiculous is that? That's not manhood. Actually, if I'm honest, in my quieter moments, what happens to me is I start to reflect and think about all the bad stuff that I've done. And all the bad stuff and the hurt that other people have done to me. And it just goes round and round in my head like a broken record over and over. And I get down, I get discouraged, I get depressed. David could have done that. Couldn't he? He could have agonized over his failures towards his son, Absalom, but he doesn't do that. I believe he's dealt with that. Psalm 51 style, he's brought his, his issues, his sin before God and found forgiveness from him. But instead he prays this way, my God, my God. And he remembers the goodness of God. I can imagine David remembering all the wonderful times of encounter he had with God in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, Yes, in Jerusalem, but in the sanctuary, the tabernacle of God's creation, in which the ceiling is the stars, because that's ultimately what the temple represents. And he would go back to his life as a little shepherd boy, a nothing, a nobody that anybody would notice. And he would remember how God would send a prophet to call him 
out, that God's eyes were on him, even when he was out in the field where he had nothing to qualify himself for for service to become a king. There was nothing about him. Yet God called him and chose him. A moment of amazing grace. I think he would have remembered and beheld the time where he took on the giant Goliath and that great victory over this intimidating man with nothing but a slingshot. How ridiculous is that? And above all, that he did it with mixed motives. Yes, he cared for the glory of God, but he also seems to care a lot about the money and getting the girl, winning the princess's hand, and all of that is going on in his heart. Yet God still gave him the victory. What grace. You can see him reflecting back on all the battles that he won that he had no right to, or the time when Prophet Nathan comes to him and says, Your throne is going to go on forever. From your line, David, from your house. You want to build a house for me? I tell you, I am building a house for myself through your line. And one's going to come who's going to reign forever. David steps back in, in a moment in response to that and says, Who am I? Who am I, God, that you? I tell you those three words, who am I, should be on the lips of every single Christian every day. The awesome grace of God. They were in John Newton's mind when he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. It's there, the preface. (laughs) These very verses Who am I? And then I think David would have remembered his sin. Adultery and murder. And yet, though he deserved to be stoned to death through repentance, he receives grace. Forgiveness from God. He's right with God. Yes, the consequences will come back and they are coming back to haunt him but it's like even though there's chaos all around him on the outside on the inside he has peace because he's right with God because he's living in the amazing grace of God is that how you pray? Do you behold God? Do you you remember what he's done for you? Do you let it stir praise and adoration in your heart? The first point is longing prayer. The second point is beholding prayer. The third point is clinging prayer. Verse 8, David says, My soul clings to you. If you track back the sort of verses that lead to that, you can see that again he is in remembering and meditating upon God. He is saying through the night, I am never going to stop thinking about you, dwelling upon you, holding on to you. It's like Jacob wrestling with God. I will not let you go until you bless me. It's persisting prayer. It's never giving up prayer. It's prayer that draws you close to abide and hold on to God so you're living under the shadow of his protection and his upholding and his help and his aid and his love. You are intimate because you're clinging hold of God. And you know sometimes in the Christian life all you've got to do is just hold on. 
That's all you can do. That may be how you feel today. You just, nothing else. You're just holding on. And we've got to hold on because there's all these things that are coming on to try and, try and pull you away from God. All the temptations, all the appeals, all the idols, all the stuff of this world, the crisis, the criticism, stuff trying to pull you away from clinging hold to Jesus. Now you might be thinking, gosh, all these points, they kind of sound the same and Honestly, they are. <laughs> this is a one-point message, and there's some sub-points, and they're all intertwined, and here's the last of them, victorious prayer. Verses 9 to 10. David is putting his confidence in the justice of God. He's claiming victory over all those who would oppose the will of God. He's putting his hope in God's future justice. It's as if he is echoing Abraham, the great father of the faith, words, will not the ruler of all the earth do right? And David is taking that prayer and saying, yes, he will. Yes, he will. I have faith. I stand firm on the justice of God. And we can too. Because we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That means that we can know the victory of God over sin, sickness, suffering, Satan and death. The victory has happened. D-Day, the definite decisive battle moment has happened. And now it's inevitable. That victory is going to be rolled out over the entire universe. It just hasn't fully happened yet. Because God is delaying. To give time for people to follow the clues to find him before it's too late. Because when he comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And he will right every wrong. He will judge every sin, big and small. The oppressed will be liberated. Those who are persecutors will be brought low. Justice will be done. It'll be cleansed of all evil and all tyranny. Every outstanding claim of evil will be dealt with and silenced in that moment when God comes again in Jesus. And if you're a person of faith, you are safe in that moment. And it means you can pray into that hope of justice to come with faith. And it's because of this hope of justice that leads to verse 11 and David saying, But the king will rejoice in God. It's an interesting moment in the psalm because he's been speaking to God and now he speaks to the congregation. And there's a contrast moment because it's no longer like he's saying, I'm going to contrast with all that's going on outside of me and the difficulties, trials, challenges I face. But this king's going to rejoice in God. How? Because my satisfaction is ultimately found in God. Because I behold him and I remember his goodness to me. Because I'm clinging hold to him and he's what matters. Because I am believing in faith for the victory of God over all things. And so he rejoices. And we can rejoice too. But that comes to the final part of this psalm and this verse. It's a very interesting ending. It's really a depiction of two ways to live. There's a warning and an invitation. 
The warning is that if you continue to live the lie, you continue to chase after the stuff that doesn't ultimately satisfy, you'll reach a point in your life where you will be utterly speechless. The desolation, the desperation, the dissatisfaction will have reached such a level that you will have no words to describe the horror of that experience. And you will be speechless, unable to mount any defense or justification for your foolishness in choosing that way to live and rejecting God. That's the warning and then there's the invitation. That if you swear by God, if you put your faith in him, in his name, in the goodness and love that is demonstrated in his character, then you will live for the praise of his glory. You will overflow with praise because you will be finding your deepest satisfaction. You'll be lost in love and wonder and adoration. It'll just flow out of you praise and adoration for God and how great and awesome he is. You will but not be able to rejoice. And that is the invitation of this series, of Heart Cry. It's an invitation to really know our God. Because if we really know him, we'll be really useful to him. That through the place of intimate, abiding prayer, we will receive an extraordinary anointing of power. And we will become courageous to shine like stars in this world. How? Because we are clinging hold to the one who matters most in this world. To Jesus. We'll be able to follow in the footsteps of those who've been courageous before us. Like Augustine, who stood as a man firm in theology against seemingly a world of heresy. Or C.S. Lewis, this great professor, criticized by so many of his peers in academia who thought he was a fool for following Christ. Or the followers of Jesus themselves, who were ultimately murdered for their faith in Jesus. How do we find such courage? I tell you, it's by clinging hold to Jesus. And in clinging to him, discovering that he is the greatest source of satisfaction in the world. And when you have him, you know you can't lose him. Let's just take a moment to pray. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live.
and in your name I will lift up my hands for my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods with singing lips my mouth will praise you Father, Son and Holy Spirit we stand in awe of you the God who would butcher himself willingly to demonstrate a love that is extraordinary who would destroy the greatest evil in this world that is the evil of our hearts who would overcome our hearts with his love Lord you are amazing and I ask you today to awaken in us a longing for you that will not be satisfied in anything else anymore. Cleanse us from all the false and lesser loves that we have chased after, that we are often tempted and distracted by, that we waste our time pursuing. God, help us today to say it's you, you alone, no one else. I want you, more of you, God. Come, we pray. Fill us up with your presence. Help us to behold, even now as we meet in this sanctuary, your power and your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. Sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.